In the book, I talk to young people, you know, across the country in cities and on college campuses. And I asked a lot of people sort of what they thought about our current sexual culture and where they got their ideas from. Because I think that one of the problems we're facing is that there are sort of, there are a lot of assumptions that we hold about what sex means or doesn't mean and what it should look like for us. And those assumptions are not necessarily serving us. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo and Johnny. Today, Washington Post columnist Christine Emba is going to talk with us about her new book, Rethinking Sex, which was just released a few weeks ago. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's good to have you. Before we get started with the interview, I'd like to thank the listeners for tuning in to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast at Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. We also want to invite ISI alumni, faculty, and supporters to attend our second inaugural Homecoming Weekend featuring Victor Davis Hansen, Ross Douthat, Patrick Deneen, among others, which will take place at ISI's beautiful campus in Wilmington, Delaware, on May 13th through 14th. You're welcome to register at our website. So, Christine, to kick things off, could you begin by telling us about the premise of your book and what inspired you to write about modern sexual ethics? Sure. Well, the book Rethinking Sex, A Provocation came out last week, March 22nd. And basically, the premise is that you know, there is there is something off about our sexual culture. There is a malaise that all of us can feel. And to do something about it, first, we need to, you know, start talking about substantive truths, we need to come to a substantive conception of what sex means, what ethics means, and what our real standards are, so we can move forwards. And how did I come to the topic? Well, so I'm a journalist at the Washington Post. As we mentioned, I am a columnist in the ideas, in the opinions section. And my beat is actually ideas in society, which is great sometimes, although it can mean everything. But in 2017 and 2018, I was working on a number of columns about the Me Too movement and that moment, because I've always been interested in these questions of culture and society and ethics. And I found the Me Too moment galvanizing. It showed that many of the problems we thought had been resolved by the sexual revolution and the feminist movement had not gone away. You still saw questions of power dynamics, of men abusing women, um, of sexual assaults happening you know, frequently and unremarked upon. In the Me Too moment, some of those cases had sort of clear, bright line answers. Harvey Weinstein, it is bad, in fact, to lock your colleagues in hotel rooms and attempt to assault them. Matt Lauer shouldn't have a locking, you know, sex button on his desk at work. But there were also cases that didn't have seemingly clear answers that existed in a gray area. And those were the ones that I found that men and women my age and younger especially related to. Stories like the Aziz Ansari debacle or the New Yorker short story, Cat Person, which was the New Yorker's most read piece of short fiction ever. And those tricky issues, you know, that were surfaced by those cases, first of all, seem to revolve around and not be resolved by the question of consent, 
And I wanted to dig into that a little bit more deeply, you know, especially in those cases, women and men were consenting to sex. Ostensibly, consent is supposed to legitimate our sex and make it good, but they were still having experiences that were depressing, sad, even traumatic. They were having sex that they didn't want to have for bad reasons, and they didn't know how to say no. I wanted to dig into this question a bit more deeply. You know, what assumptions were we holding as a culture that weren't serving us? Where did we think the sexual revolution should have taken us, and where did we end up? And if consent is not enough of an ethic, and I argue that it's not, what should our new ethic be? So Chris, something that you mentioned earlier um, is Me Too, which obviously exposed a lot of sexual abuse in Hollywood and across numerous other indus- industries. And you mentioned that as one of the flashpoints of recent years that exposed kind of a raw in American sexual dynamics. Um, and you mentioned specifically power dynamics. And especially in the, among the rich and powerful, this was kind of um, a striking display of that. Um, Could you discuss the class contours in your book too? Uh, I mean, we have the power dynamics and also what have you observed just, you know, speaking to people and um, researching for your book that highlighted perhaps different class contours in the question of um, sexual ethics and morality? Can you be a little bit more specific by what you mean by class contours here? Sure. So like, um, you know, Whenever these cases are brought to light, uh, you mentioned Matt Lauer, you mentioned, um, I I mean, Harvey Weinstein, Aziz Ansari, all of these are celebrities. And that kind of exposed how the rich and powerful may abuse their positions to, um, you know, sexually assault, harass um, women, people who are uh, subordinates, etc. Is there something that you kind of gleaned from that, um, that helped you see it in kind of a fuller picture, this, this entire question, you know, because obviously the upper crust of society, it, it's not reflective completely of, of the rest of American society. And perhaps at a lower level, you know, we still have college, uh, we still have hookup, hookup culture. And I guess, quote, you know, what is called rape culture today on college campuses. And perhaps in, um, working class families, there are other kind of norms that, um, that that we know of when we talk about the subject of uh, sexual ethics. So I'm just, I guess it's kind of an open question about maybe things that you perceived when you were talking to people or just researching um, that were different just across the different classes that make up American society. Sure. That's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. You know, I think it is in some ways the almost upper classes and sort of more educated or upwardly mobile sectors of society that have, I think, embraced almost most strongly the ideas of, you know, sexual revolution, that sex is something that defines us, that the more of it we have, the better, that our desires, you know, shouldn't be questioned by anybody, that the sex that we have is private. It's just two consenting adults. It's not my family's business. It's not my friend's business. And that I talk about in the book. These are some assumptions that I actually don't think are the case. And I talk about how, you know, we, one of the things that I could critique most strongly in the book is using the ethic or the the, the standard of consent um, as the only way to critique sex. You know, we seem to have come to this understanding sort of especially in the upper classes where the ideals of sort of liberalism and freedom feel almost most strong that consent is what legitimates our actions. And it's the only standard if 
somebody has consented to something, be it a sexual encounter or anything else, then whatever happens next is beyond critique. And that means that we don't have to analyze what, whether the, the thing that was consented to was good, whether the society that it brings about is good, why a person even consented. And I think that that has actually been used as an excuse for a lot of selfishness in society. And we see that, you know, from the top down. In the case of, you know, sort of wealthy high rollers, it gives them the excuse to say, well, this woman consented to have sex with me or uh, consented to do this thing for me. And hey, I asked. So don't ask me any more questions about it. It's fine. And unfortunately, and sadly, one of the things that I noticed during the Me Too movement is that there were these clear cases of something much broader being wrong. Um, The abuse of subordinates, um, sexual desires being pushed on other people that were frankly, you know, wrong. Um, I argue in the book that some desires are worse than others. But the defense that was given again and again by wealthy people and their lawyers, frankly, was, well, it was two consenting adults. And the only critique that, you know, our society gave this was, well, you didn't ask consent before you did this crazy thing that you did. And, you know, I argue that consent is an extremely low bar. Just because we have consent doesn't make the sex that we have good, Uh, doesn't make things appropriate, doesn't make things good for ourselves and for society. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Christine, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your findings among college students and their views today on sexuality. I'm thinking, you know, a little bit back to my own college days in the the late aughts. And, you know, if you were to watch some of the, you know, especially comedy movies in the, the, the sort of the early to mid aughts, you know, you would have uh, the, the conception of what life was like on a college campus with sort of the glorification of hookup culture is, you know, seems to me to be very different um, from what the post Me Too landscape looks like on a college campus with how students are thinking about sexuality, uh, even though there still is some form of hookup culture that still exists. So maybe you could comment on sort of shifting views uh, among college students about sex and what you found uh, with your research. Sure. Well, in the book, I talked to young people, you know, across the country in cities and on college campuses. And I asked a lot of people sort of they thought about our current sexual culture and where they got their ideas from. Because I think that one of the problems we're facing is that there are sort of, there are a lot of assumptions that we hold about what sex means or doesn't mean and what it should look like for us. And those assumptions are not necessarily serving us. So one thing that, you know, seemed to resonate millennials down to Gen Z and current college students is an idea that sex is supposed to be meaningless, that, you know, it's just another activity like any anything else and you don't need to have feelings about it. In the hookup culture vein, also an idea that, you know, the best the best sexual sexual persona to have is that of the chill guy or the chill girl, where you're just having sex. You're not looking for a relationship. You don't want to be tied down. You're kind of doing things for the experience and for the story. And that that is actually sort of the best way to go about life. And then also, you know, a sort of false understanding in my sense that men and women are kind of the same, that they will approach sex the same and feel the same way about it. And there's really no distinction. You don't need to worry about that. Again, you just have to make sure all parties are consenting. 
and everything else is okay. And in talking to people and talking to young people, what I found is that many of them seem to have been and feel like they've been fed these narratives by, you know, the media, by society, but they don't actually feel that intuitively you know, people want love, they want relationships, they don't actually want to be chill. (laughs) They want to care for someone and be cared for. And then intuitively, you know, when having sex, most people realize like, oh, something is happening here. And I do have feelings. But some people felt that they were the only ones that they were weird for thinking that. I was encouraged, though, in talking to some students on college campuses who unfortunately, I think, had to fight through some of their own bad sexual encounters to come to the realization that, like, this isn't serving me, actually. Like, the protagonists of Sex in the City and Euphoria are actually having a terrible time. That's not what I want to be doing with my life. Like, maybe I actually should be trying to have sex under the banner of love. Maybe it's not silly to try and look for a real partner at this stage in my life. On that note, I kind of want to like probe any type of um, like religious influence or um, kind of aspects that, you know, may have influenced how you approach this book. So, um, you know, you're, you're finding that the consent only sexual code, which is the basis of a lot of these sexual encounters that you just mentioned, is insu- insu- insufficient and leaving a lot of people unhappy and unfulfilled, especially on college campuses. It's a very valuable one, especially in a secular context. And it's an observation that Christians especially have um, made. And just speaking as a Catholic, um, Pope John Paul II's theology, Pope John Paul II's theology of the body um, and the concept of God's nuptial meaning and purposes of the body animates how Catholics, for example, ought to approach sexual ethics and mutual love and responsibility, often through you know the the lens of of marriage and marriage as a medium. So, could you talk about how, like, I guess quote-unquote, religious conceptions of sexuality influenced how you approached writing this book? Because I saw that you referenced both Thomas De- Thomas Aquinas and Roger Scruton, who the latter, you know, perhaps was a little bit, you know, he, he didn't really have, he, he isn't an explicitly religious person, but uh, he's definitely in kind of the conservative camp for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> um, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, the book was written about in the New York Times and Michelle Goldberg, the columnist, was like, Christina Emba is a heterodox thinker. I don't really know how to place her because she's quoting Andrea Dworkin, but also Roger Scruton and Aquinas, but also Ellen Willis, this like radical feminist from the 70s. But in writing this book, you know, part of also what drew me to this topic is that I um, grew up evangelical and converted to Catholicism in college. And as such, you know, sort of watched hookup culture play out from the outside at first, um, because, you know, I was um, religiously observant and not having sex and like watching all of my friends sort of go about their affairs and being like, this looks terrible. Like you say that you're liberated and having fun, but you're actually all kind of miserable. (laughs) Um, And in writing this book, I took a lot of inspiration from, you know, Catholicism and Catholic social teaching and what tradition has to tell us about what human flourishing looks like, what human nature is. So for instance, talking about consent, um, I argue that consent is kind of a legal standard. It's incredibly important. It's one that we have to have. Consent is like the baseline, but it is a baseline. It's a floor. It's not a ceiling. 
And we should be asking ourselves not just what can we get away with legally, but also higher questions about how to be a moral person, how to be ethical in our relationships with each other. And I actually proposed as a higher standard the concept of willing the good of the other, which is Aristotle by way of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, famous, <laughs> famous Catholic. And willing the good of the other, you know, is Aquinas's definition of love. And it actually means, you know, caring about the other person's good as much as you would care for your own and together creating even a greater good between you. But that in and of itself also implicates us in in a search for the truth and a search for what the good actually means, which is, you know, something that religion, faith, Christianity has asked us for all along and asks us to realize that there is something greater and more important than, you know, our base desires and our selfishness when we're trying to figure out how to go about life, that there is actually a standard, that there is some higher good. Christine, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what the prospect you think, what what are the prospects for kind of actually reforming the way that people in America today think about sexuality? Because it often seems, especially, you know, with the the prevalence of, of things like pornography, that the cat's kind of out of the bag and uh, it'd be hard to moderate or temper sort of American Americans' sexual appetites. So I'm wondering if you think, you know, maybe maybe this is, there might, there might be an over, you know, there, there's sort of a natural correction that might occur as people experience senses of alienation and frustration and kind of seek out a, a deeper meaning, you know, going beyond consent for sexual ethics. Do you think that will happen just naturally? Um, kind of like people might stop drinking less if they continue to experience hangovers or do you, I don't know, how, how do we, is there a uh, actual way out of this crisis that you see coming down the pike or do you think we're going to struggle uh, with alienation for the foreseeable future? Really good question. I mean, society doesn't necessarily, and by not necessarily, I mean really ever, turn on a dime overnight, of course. But that said, I, I do see some signs of hope. I mean, if there is one thing that the Me Too movement showed us, it was that people are aware when they are experiencing injustice, when there is something wrong in the world. And given the opportunity, given the space, they want to change things. They want to make things better. The Me Too moment was a great moment of you know women finally telling the truth about their experiences. And clearly that meant that they knew their experiences to be bad. And it did. we did see change happening after that, although not as much as we would have wanted. I think kind of where we ended up after the Me Too moment was that a lot of people came forward and said, this, this culture is harming me. Something is wrong here. And, you know, finally more people took notice and said, oh yeah, that's, that's bad. Things are, things are bad out there. <laughs> um, but it wasn't actually clear where to go next. And it wasn't clear how to talk about what was bad, um, except through, you know, the lens of consent. And so the, to me, it felt a little bit like the conversation kind of stalled out. But then, you know, we've also had, obviously, COVID happen. And I think that has been another moment of reckoning and realization. You know, before COVID, I think we were still very much immersed in, you know, a market forward sort of swiping culture. We're all on our apps. We're all just like going on dates and not thinking about, you know, what we really want from our relationships and from sex. And having, you know, two years of sort of solitude and lockdown and sadness, really, where we really were forced to think about, you know, 
what do relationships mean to me? What would have been fulfilling to have in this time? Like three more hookups or (laughs) someone who actually cares about me? And how do I get that? What does that look like? I think, and I'm hopeful that that made people a little bit more reflective about, you know, their sexual behavior, their relationships, how they wanted to change going forward. At least that was the conclusion that many of the people I spoke to um, for this book came to, because I was interviewing people both before COVID and during and writing during. You know, I wrote Rethinking Sex and the subtitle is A Provocation because I think that one of the ways that we create social change in these big spaces is first by being honest about what's going on, like really making substantive claims about, you know, What has happened with sex? What does the landscape look like now? What are the lived experiences of people? What are the false assumptions we have and what is wrong or right about them? And then having these discussions out in public, openly, you know, correcting each other when we're wrong, but really being honest about what we want and where we're trying to go, because you have to kind of set that baseline before you can move forward. And I think people people are waking up to the fact, you know, that they don't want to be lonely, that they don't want to be hurt, that the culture isn't serving them. And they're looking for a way out. And I'm hoping that, you know, with this book, and by starting some of these conversations, we can move forward that way. That's an interesting point about, I think there is this kind of growing um, desire for, especially during COVID and just the loneliness that COVID um, put so many people, I mean, everyone through to some degree or another. Um, something interesting I've kind of observed is the um, marketing shifts. So like Hinge, for example, has kind of branded themselves as the the app that's meant to be deleted, um, which, you know, kind of tells people, well, that's a much better um a much better goal for me than Tinder would be, for example, which, you know, is more in colloquial terms, kind of, it's much more known for being the kind of um, one night stand hookup app that perhaps college students would use. But I have seen more commercials and advertising for apps that are intended for more meaningful long-term relationships that aren't just one night stands. So I'd be interested in hearing kind of from a business marketing pr- perspective, have and and just how you approached your book. Um, do you also observe these ki- kinds of? I mean, maybe it's reflective of a cultural shift um, over the past like two years as COVID has kind of you know settled in and people, um, especially through the first year, had to acclimate to this insular lifestyle that unfortunately was foisted upon them. And do you think that like brands and companies are like using or kind of seizing the moment to cater to those to those desires? You know, it's it's not quite clear yet. Um, <laughs> in the book, you know, I there's a chapter where I talk about Tinder actually and how you know Tinder's first branding campaign ever was single, not sorry, and it was all about like staying single and having fun basically, and that was the rollout. And you know, these companies have put their apps together in ways that, you know, try and make dating into a game. You know, people are sort of cards in a deck and you can endlessly swipe, which leads to sort of commoditizing people um, and making it easier to treat people badly because, you know, you don't know them. They don't know you. You don't have any responsibility towards them. And unfortunately, that is how they make their money, actually. Like the longer you stay on the app swiping, the more money that they're making. And so the 
you know, they may say that they're trying to get you off the app, but are they really when it comes down to it? (laughs) That said, I do think that, especially during the pandemic, um, you did see these increases in loneliness and people wanting to meet each other. And the apps did respond by, you know, setting up options to video chat with people um, to go from texting to talking first to actually, you know, these processes that made forming a relationship seem more plausible because, you know, if you're Zooming with somebody, you aren't going to jump into bed with them because you're in two different places and yet apps were facilitating this. Maybe just because they knew that people couldn't get out, but maybe there was an awareness too that, you know, actual contact with a real human was what people were looking for. So I'm not sure actually what it looks like going forward. I think it will depend a lot on consumer desire. I also, though, am seeing in some places, anecdotally, a real interest from younger men and women to get off the apps themselves, to meet people through friends again, or even matchmaking, to find some way to meet people in person where it feels like real life and where they feel like a person and not a commodity. And, you know, I'm interested in seeing where that goes. Christine, uh, you mentioned um, Andrea Dworkin in your book and, uh, you know, there other other figures and kind of different uh, sides of the spectrum. People like Sorbamari also cited Dworkin and uh, her views on pornography and his book about kind of recovering uh, religious traditionalism. And I'm wondering if you think there might be any ground for, you know, religious and social conservatives to, you know, find common ground with uh, feminists like uh, in the vein of Dworkin to, to you know, form some solidarity on some of these issues, if you see any coalition like that coming to to pass. Yeah, sort of a feminist horseshoe theory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a reason why I was able to cite both sort of radical feminists and thinkers like Aquinas in the same book. I think we, you know, in conservative spaces, especially are often sort of set at odds, right? There's this idea that, you know, feminism is bad and like feminists hate men and feminists are the opposite of anything conservative. Um, But I think what is often being reacted to is sort of an almost bastardized version of feminism. Um, You know, a feminism that's not what the movement was ever supposed to be about. You know, Dworkin uh, and many of the sort of real second wave feminists wrote about, you know, not that women were like, better than men or that, you know, they hated men. Although Jorkin especially talked about how she was really harmed by men. She was, you know, forced into prostitution at one point. Um, But they talk about how the real goal is for women to be seen as equal to men and equally valuable, but specifically actually equally valuable as women. And that women should not be forced to be like men in order to be members of society. And I think that's actually something that, you know, conservatives have a lot of kinship with, actually. You know, the idea that both sexes are valuable, that both sexes have things that are, you know, significant and particular to them, and that that's actually great. That's okay, and that's something that should be celebrated. And similarly, you know, the feminist movement, um, you know, really talked about a society in which, you know, equality was the norm for both sexes, and that, you know, love was a real goal, not domination, uh, as opposed to, you know, a sort of playboy-esque view that, 
you know, sort of overtook the movement. In the book, I write about how, you know, the original aims of the feminist movement were kind of overtaken by this sort of materialist, you know, frankly, capitalist, like how do we sell things with sex uh, movement and, you know, left some of the real truths behind. And I think conservatives and conservative thinkers are very much aware of those real truths too. And there is something that could be shared there. On the note of kind of this patriarchal capitalism that you kind of explore and obviously the legitimization of something like sex work, which, you know, I would just call prostitution. And I personally, I believe it is a victimization of of the person that's participating. What did you find, though, from, um, you know, just researching the book and speaking to people and kind of your your thinking or your thought process um, when you're trying to square which something that is objectifying a woman or um, in some cases, men who participate in that, in that type of, in that type of act for, for money. How do you square that with the old school feminists and the feminists of today, or, you know, that just that kind of, or maybe the more libertarian, the people who do come to the defense of, um, of just legalizing, legalizing prostitution. Um, And also you can square that with things like, um, obviously like Playboy magazine was kind of a, uh, this, um, this consumerist magazine of, uh, of sexual desire and, um, women who have unattainable features that, that could just, you know, kind of romp around Hugh Hefner all day. How did that, how do you think all of these things play into each other? And it almost seems like I've and just on the corners of the internet that, and the research I've done previously as a reporter on the subject of pornography, um, is that there is kind of this this skepticism that's developing among young women, especially who are saying, "I was put on birth control at like age fourteen, and now like I have all these horrible side effects, and I was never like told about that, or um, like it's a terrible condition or it's a terrible situation you must be in to be pushed to participate in you know prostitution under like very coercive circumstances, et cetera." Um, what was your just observation with all of these different uh, narratives kind of not cohering with each other really well? And there being so many different ones just over the span of, you know, these decades between like the sexual liberation uh, movements and what's happening today. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to be clear, it, rethinking sex is not, ne- is not necessarily meant to be a reactionary book. I think that, you know, the sexual revolution and the feminist movements were important in that, you know, they they did lead to women's equality in many sectors. And we we don't want to go back on that. But at the same time, I think that part of the project of this book is trying to take stock of, you know, what did we think we were going to get out of the sexual revolution? Uh, what were the actual goals of the feminist movement at that time? And where did we end up? And why? And so one of the questions that I think I ask, um, I asked myself as I was writing this and was kind of asking in a number of situations in the book was like, what, what are the assumptions that we have now about sex and what our sexual culture looks like? Who is that serving? Cause it doesn't necessarily seem like it's serving us. <laughs> um, so in talking about, you know, um, the ideal that, you know, women should be chill and, you know, not care about sex, um, not have feelings. Like that was sort of almost an invention of playboy culture. And the person who was being served there was the playboy, Hugh Hefner, who then just had all these women 
at his disposal. That wasn't helping women. That was helping this one guy. Um, And this understanding of sort of sex as consumption and that the best person, the best kind of person to be is, you know, not tied down by feelings, not tied down by relationships so that you can move across the country and take a big job and be a girl boss. Like, who is that serving you emotionally and your relationships? Or it just makes you a better, you know, worker for a nameless company that is not, in fact, your family. (laughs) You know, when we talk about like, well, we have to, you know, allow women to engage in sex work and sex work is work. And also pornography is great if we want to engage in it. Like, is that serving the pornographers? Yes. Is it serving the women who then are maybe forced into abusive circumstances? Probably not. And I think that these are some of the questions that we have to to think of. Like, what is, what's the end game here? Is this something that are these these choices that we're making, these things foisted upon us, um, are they leading to human flourishing? Flourishing for us as people? Or is there another end in mind that we're just kind of being a part of? Christine, I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about the impact of the sexual revolution on men in particular. I know one thing that I've noticed, uh, recently been reading through several biographies of different European uh, monarchical dynasties. And one of the things that I noticed uh, in particular among the various kings and princes is that, you know, even if they were, you know, uh, allegedly Christian, you know, they they pretty much, you know, engaged in sort of nonstop, you know, extramarital affairs and all sorts of uh, what could be considered sexually deviant behavior. And from one angle, you could you could see someone asking, you know, if if there's really no consequences for them in the sense of they're not going to get in trouble for their actions. They can get away with whatever they want because they're the king or they can they're the prince. But one of the things that I picked up on that I thought was really strange when when reading through some of their diaries is you you see, you know, 60 year old men who basically every, let's say, six to nine months get a new crush uh, on someone else. And they sort of reading through it, it reminded me of reading like the diary of a 13 or 14 year old boy. And it felt like their emotional maturity was was stunted by their sort of frequent indiscriminate um, sexual appetites. Uh, And they, they just weren't mature. And it really impacted their ability to govern their ability to think clearly and control appetites in other areas of their life that weren't sexual. So I'm wondering if you could comment on your findings on the impact of this culture on men and some of the negative ways that uh, it's impacted them as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I talked to a lot of women for this book, but I also talked to men too. And men, I think, are also hurting in many ways. You know, early on in the book, I talk about how, you know, we're liberated, but we're miserable in some ways and how the demise of standards has kind of making it made, has made it harder for both men and women to get together Um, For many men, I think there is a fear that, you know, if consent, consent is the the baseline, great. Um, But how do you act apart from that? What are you supposed to do? You know enough to not be Harvey Weinstein, but you don't want to be like West Elm Caleb or Aziz Ansari either. And because there are no structures in place, it can be really confusing and scary and like actually makes it harder to approach a woman or, you know, try and form a relationship. And then when it comes to a sexual culture that glorifies sort of permissiveness and getting as much sex as possible, A, if you're not doing that, 
as a man, because the stereotype is like, that's what men want, it might feel like you're failing at something. But also, if you actually want a relationship, if you want love, you know, it, it becomes harder to say that because that doesn't feel like the norm. That always feels like being a, a bad man in some way. And so men are left lonely because of that and, you know, can't talk about it and find it harder to to find the connection that they seek too. And then, of course, you know, you have the question of pornography, which I think for women has been harmful because you hear so many stories and, you know, I interview women in this book who say like, you know, I've met this guy and, you know, I like him, but he's, he's like choking me or he's, you know, doing these things that he's very clearly picked up from porn, but then talking to men too about porn, you know, I talked to one guy who was like, well, I started watching porn and I realized that, you know, I was so used to responding to kind of like this avatar on a screen that I couldn't respond to real people anymore. And I couldn't sustain relationships with real women. And that's how I knew I need to stop watching porn. Or men who are like, well, I feel like my desire has been warped by what I'm watching. And now I'm I'm sort of into degradation or like have developed these sort of like, you know, strange and, you know, in some ways perverted fetishes that are clearly not serving me, are not making it easier to get into a relationship, like make me feel like there is something wrong. But I don't know what to do about it. Because if everything is permitted, like, I guess this is just how it is. And it's normal. And I can't complain. And I think that really hurts men too. So, you know, I think there's often, you know, the statement that like, well, men are winning out in the sexual revolution, even if women are hurt, because men can have all the sex that they want. But having all the sex that you want isn't necessarily good for you. There is a virtue to restraint. And I think both sides are suffering for lack of that. You you mentioned, um, and this is kind of tangential to pornography, especially since the age of first exposure has become, I mean, I've heard reports that it's like eight years old, sometimes at 11 years for boys. Yeah. So it's like extremely young. You you figure, you know, maybe like people might think um, it might be, you know, during teenage years that that's kind of when children are curious and they might be, you know, being exposed to that online, but it's, it's during, you know, childhood, during the first few years of, of, of a child's life. So obviously you spoke to men and women, presumably, you know, adult men and women. What's your understanding of how sexuality and our sexual nor, uh, norms today impact children and just their, their, you know, sexual education or their understanding of what sexuality even is? Obviously that's a huge debate, um, whether that should be included in childhood education and every, you know, Catholic schools will certainly approach that much differently than um, perhaps public schools would um, because they might include those types of education avenues in high school, et cetera, um, or they might teach something like theology of the body in a Catholic school, et cetera. So there are these various ways that children can learn about um, sexuality, but what was kind of your finding? And perhaps your book doesn't um, dive too much into that in the subject of children, but I'd be curious just from um, like a perspective of, a, you know, parents maybe you spoke to or even college students, what did you kind of learn or observe about children and how um, how sexuality is is seen today in America? 
Yeah, really good question. A really important one. I mean, you point out the young age of first pornography exposure. And, you know, the case, the the example case is in that it's not like little kids are out there looking for pornography on the internet. But often it's, you know, kids innocently surfing the internet or like looking up very basic, trying to look up like very basic facts, you know, when they're approaching puberty, like what are breasts? And then the answer that comes back to them is like some sort of awful pornography that they weren't searching for. But then if that becomes their first exposure and no one else is really talking to them about what sex is, what relationships are, what this should look like, it can be the case that then you just believe that porn is all that there is. And that is actually becomes a lot of young people's sort of first teacher when it comes to sex, which is horrifying because obviously pornography is not real. Um, The most popular kinds of pornography that are floating around on the internet are often, you know, of the most degrading kinds um, where men are abusing women and, you know, treating them as objects, which is not what you want to um, try and be like, you know, in talking to a lot of, um, the people that I interviewed for my book, men, women, um, and young people, I asked, you know, what do you wish you had known in the context of what their sex education would look like or had looked like? And many of them said, you know, I guess in, you know, some sort of birds and the bees class in middle school or high school, like I learned about the different parts of you know, (laughs) the genitalia and the reproductive system. And I learned about STIs, but no one ever really taught me like how to have a relationship or what sex is supposed to look like or what sex really means, how to relate to another person. And that's what I sort of had to figure out on my own or maybe through porn or through talking to my friends. And I wish I had learned more about that early on. I think we need a less, you know, fear-based sex ed um, and more discussion of the good. Again, like not having a low standard of like, here's what to avoid, here are the nuts and bolts and how to not get it wrong. But also, what do we want? What does the good look like? How do we get there? And start talking about that from a younger age um, before actually, you know, kids are exposed to pornography and then learn this whole different and wrong um, system on their own. Christine, I think that's the perfect note to end our show today. If our audience is interested in following you or seeing more of their work, uh, where can they seeing more of your work? Where can they find you? So I obviously am a columnist at the Washington Post, and I'm writing there weekly. I'm also on Twitter at Christine Emba, just my first and last name, and my Instagram handle is the same. And then, of course, you can buy Rethinking Sex, a provocation, uh, pretty much wherever books are sold. It's on Amazon, Bookshop, and hopefully at your local indie retailer. So I'd love it if you check it out and share it with friends. That's fantastic. Thanks again for joining us, Christine. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.